Sarah. Hi, Alison. Spotlight on France, still in coronavirus confinement mode. Um, but the end could be near. It could. Just around the corner, in fact. Lockdown is to be lifted on May the 11th here in France. The date was announced by the president last week. And then this week, the prime minister told us a bit more about what things were going to look like. We'll no longer need certificates, for example, to leave the house. And a lot of things like shops will reopen. But there are plenty of limitations, too. Yeah, and the, the biggest announcement is that um, the reopening will be done department by department, so regionally. And the government's going to establish what they call red areas and green areas. You're in a red area. It means there's still too many cases. Hospitals are still too full. So more restrictions. And, of course, Paris looks set to be a red region. Part of the plan involves focusing on sick people, even mild cases, more than has been done so far. They'll be forced into confinement, whether at home or in hotels. And then there'll be teams of people searching for other people that they may have infected, which is something that doesn't happen today. Yeah, and there's talk of this tracking app that will alert us all if we've been in contact with, with people who are sick. It's extremely controversial and will be put to a vote in Parliament no matter what happens. Yeah, all businesses will be able to reopen, but with social distancing measures. So there'll be limits on the number of people allowed to work at any one time in an office. The government says it favours people working from home wherever possible. That will apply to us, for example, as journalists. Schools are going to be opening uh, gradually with small groups. It's still extremely unclear how that will work. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty at all this, and people are wondering how they're going to be juggling their kids in school and having to go back to work. A lot of teachers are still very opposed to the idea of rushing back to school. Um, Travelling is still limited to a 100-kilometre radius, so there'll be no tripping down to the Côte d'Azur for us Parisians. Beaches, in any case, won't reopen on the 11th. Summer holidays are up in the air. Which is a big deal for French people, because summer holidays are a really important part of the culture here. Yeah, totally. And also, summer holidays means tourism, and loads and lo you know, tourism is a really big part of the French economy as well. So nothing's going to happen on that front, at least until June, when a second phase of moving out of lockdown could be announced. So much will end up depending on just how the French behave after the 11th of May. Yeah, and how the French behave and how the virus behaves as well and how it spreads. Um, the uncertainty, of course, is upsetting a lot of people. Um, it is logical, though. It's part of the terrain. I guess if we knew what to expect, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Now, Sarah, people working in the culture sector are definitely not celebrating here in France yet. There are no large museums or cinemas or concert halls um, that have been allowed to reopen yet, and they don't even know when they will. All the major festivals, whether it's Cannes Film Festival, Avignon Theatre Festival, and all the big summer music festivals have been cancelled. So this is really hard for people working often on a freelance basis in Uh, the, the cultural field, and obviously no films are being shot for a start. But one ingenious French documentary filmmaker has turned lockdown to his advantage. He's called Louis Villers, and when it became clear that the unthinkable was going to happen and France would go into lockdown, he began filming his daily life with his partner, Jiawa Liu, from the confines of their Paris flat. Now, Villers began filming short videos on the 14th of March, so just before we went into lockdown. Louis just turns to me, he goes, we're going to make a documentary. 
And since then, it's grown. What they're doing has grown into a weekly 26-minute documentary, which is broadcast every Saturday evening on Canal Plus TV. The documentary is called Fenêtre, meaning windows, and that's really what it does. It opens a window onto their own personal lives, onto the streets of Paris. And because they talk to their friends and family via video links, we get a window onto a lot of other people's lives as well. Louis and Jiawa live literally just around the corner from me, I found out. So the neighborhood is totally familiar. I can see the post office, the school, and sadly, even some of the local rough sleepers. I've never met the couple, but they talked to me on the phone, of course, about how this really personal video diary became a way of charting in real time what it's like to live through these totally uncharted waters. We don't know at all uh, where we are going with these videos, but we should start filming at the beginning of confinement because I think this experience will change a lot of things uh, for us personally and, uh, and for friends and for the world. So it will be very interesting to keep a trace, a record of us changing and of our questions. But you didn't know at that time that it might end up becoming this big thing. You've now made uh, six episodes, there'll be eight in total, broadcast every Saturday on Canal Plus, which is one of France's biggest private TV channels. Yeah, exactly. At the beginning, when Emmanuel Macron talked, he, he said, during two weeks, you would be in confinement. We didn't know it was going to last like two months. We just wanted to post every day one video on YouTube to be sure that we capture our questioning at this exact moment. What were the main challenges for you, Louis? Because you're a documentary filmmaker who's travelled the world and is quite accustomed to being out in wide open spaces. And now here you find yourself in what is, I think, a fairly small flat. Is that right? On Avenue Saint-Ouen in Paris? It was easy for me the first days because everything was so new for us. Uh, what we could see in the street was completely new. The lockdown, the shop who closed, the first policemen who arrest people because they don't have the piece of paper to go to, to the boulangerie. You witnessed all of that from your, from your balcony? Yeah, everything is shot from the balcony. So at the beginning it was easy to shoot, like, like I would have done any other report. And day after day it was uh, more challenging to renew myself with like new images, of course, because I can only film my apartment, my girlfriend and the street. So I try every day to find new uh, images, new stories to tell. New ways to film Jawa, uh, whether she's cooking or waking up in the morning or receiving a birthday present that you managed to go and get for her by being rather clever, just walking one kilometer and then have a friend of hers deliver the present going another one kilometer so you met in the middle. I really needed to feel like six minutes in the in the previous episode, so I had to find all these <laughs> ideas, you know. <laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, it's your birthday? Thank God, I have something to film this week. <laughs> and has making this documentary in any way changed the way that you see Paris? We have very different views of Paris because I'm, I'm coming from outside and I've discovered it very recently. And I think Louis has rediscovered it through my enthusiasm and for me i think that what this experience has done is that it's made me realize even more 
deeply what is it that makes Paris Paris and I've come to the conclusion that it's actually people and um, what you see when you go outside, what people do, what they wear, how they behave. Even if the buildings are still there, even if you know all the scenery is still there, without the people it's not Paris. For me like it's, it's the first time that I observe Paris like so much but actually I'm just observing Avenue de Saint-Ouen, that's it. Now I can recognize the people, I can, I know like how often they go to the boulangerie or how often they need to go and buy a bottle of wine. I know, of course, perfectly at what time the post office is opening, which day it's, uh, it's closed, these kind of little details. Because I think I never have looked at Paris from my balcony before. Yeah, you've been doing your kind of Hitchcockian rear window experience and snooping on people. <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're near boss, of course. You look at the, the windows yeah. of others, you know people who, who left, you know at what time they are cooking. It's, it's kind of interesting to observe this because I never looked at Paris like this before. Throughout the documentary, you're speaking to friends and relatives, making video calls, and you have a very rich and varied entourage. We meet, you know, family members who happen to be uh, nurses and doctors, but also there's your aging grandmothers who are able to talk about feeling isolated and concerns like that. You have a friend who's a priest who can talk about people, you know, not being able to visit elderly relatives, people dying and the challenges that it poses. Yeah, and I think this period of confinement was a great opportunity for, for everyone to take their phone back and call people. I never had so much like phone calls and video calls during this period. And I think it's the same for like French people and people in the world. And we're not really getting news, I think, about, you know, the global situation through the news. So it's actually through family and friends and other connections that we're getting an idea of how just how global this is. As a um, Australian Chinese, Jiawa, I was just wondering what's been your impression as a kind of outsider of the way that the French are dealing with confinement? I was very interested by this from the very beginning. I think it was in January that the news started to become quite widespread that Wuhan was, um, was having um, their epidemic. So I work in fashion and during the very period that the world of fashion is traveling to all the different hotspots, uh, for example, I was actually in Milan. I left the day after they they uh, had those 10 cases in the city in Lombardia. Um, and of course, I was in Milan, so that was extremely close to home. What I observed when that happened was that there was just no reaction. I had a reaction that I felt you know, very concerned, but the people around me were not concerned. I grew up in China. I left when I was 10. And um, we still have, at that time, maybe still now, a lot of the diseases that have already been eradicated in the West. So like from a very young age, I have a trigger in my mind that um, you don't want to catch infectious disease and that they're everywhere. But I think that culturally, perhaps in like more wealthy countries like France, there's just not that culture. I remember my shock when they locked down Wuhan. And then I remember my shock when they locked down north of Italy. But I never thought that it could happen to, to Paris. It's only when the Prime Minister Edouard Philippe told, now we are closing the bars and restaurants, it was not locked down yet, that I said, okay, it's coming to us. And this is the exact moment I decided to start filming, actually. So you, you said at the beginning that quite a lot of things had changed, have changed during these last seven weeks since you started filming 
daily life under lockdown here in Paris. What, what would you say are the major changes? What have you noticed? I think we need to be at the end of lockdown to know exactly what would be the main changes of our life. For example, I'm really wondering how will I go to my office when it will be finished? Will I take the metro? How I will say hello to people? These little things. And after, of course, I think we will see, uh, but it's hard to know now, but we will see more deep changes in our society, of course. Well, I think the psychological change was quite immediate. And for me, I think that will be the biggest change. From the, the first day that we went outside after shutdown started, there was a feeling that being next to someone was like a taboo. And it's, uh, it's completely psychological because this was only a few days after you know, we were all being quite nonchalant, going outside, kissing cheeks. Yeah, I mean, the, the French do all this kissing and hugging and clearly we've, we've got out of the habit, haven't we? I wonder if that's going to come back quickly or, or not. I think people won't want to. Yeah, but, yeah. but you never know, you never know because we know that a lot of things will change. But the main interrogation also of my friends, of my family and, and me too is maybe it will come back exactly like before, very mm -hmm. quickly. It's also completely possible. Of course, we won't kiss uh, in May or in June, but maybe in September. I just wanted to um, pick up on one guy who really has stuck in my mind. One of your friends, he's called Arnaud, and he holds the, I think, world record for freediving. And he speaks in such a poetic way about going really, really deep down into the sea and he talks about the feeling he has that we're all underwater now and doesn't really know what it's going to be like when we come to the surface and what will have changed, etc. What he says is beautiful and what he says, I think, reflects what French people think uh, that this confinement period was a great opportunity for us also to think of another way to leave. So it reflects all these questions that, that we had. And I, I can see in the documentary we had a lot of conversation like this with, with a lot of friends. Well, I had but a question about Arnaud because he talks about going down deep as a learning experience. And I think that that's maybe the most important thing for us to realize. Like we can choose to take it as something to take something for our lives when we come back up again. That's why I want to keep and I want to record all these interrogations, all these reflections now because i think it will be very interesting to see that we had all these reflections and to see if we actually will change or not so there's a very personal look into how some people are dealing with confinement but this confinement has also interested researchers and a group of sociologists at Sciences Po University here has been asking a cohort of people how they're managing it. Um, it's actually a group of people, a cross-section of the French public, that they'd already been working with before the pandemic. And now the researchers are checking in with them every two weeks with a survey. Ettore Recci is the project's coordinator. And I reached him. He, he was uh, speaking to me from his apartment in Paris. And we talked about what they've been finding. He said in the first survey, a couple weeks after the lockdown, they found that 40% of people knew somebody who's been infected by this coronavirus. But that actually there's stress levels about the confinement were remarkably low. We posed a simple question, how do you feel about the lockdown? And we presented four alternatives, two positive and two negative. 
And the two positive were, uh, well, the lockdown allows me to take a step back and think about my way of life. And the other positive was uh, the lockdown allows me to spend time on essential things like family, friends, and children. And 75% of respondents chose these two items over the other two, which were the lockdown tires my nerves and the lockdown uh, makes me waste a lot of time. So people were basically like, they were gravitating towards the more positive spin on it. Definitely. At first sight, it is surprising because we thought that people were panicking. And actually what we found out is what I've called the eye of a storm paradox. Uh, When people are confronted with extreme circumstances like uh, earthquakes and uh, tsunamis, there was a study on the Fukushima incident in Japan, and people there actually reported a higher sense of general health and subjective well-being. And that's exactly what we are finding as well. This isn't really necessarily like, I don't know, like a philosophical approach by the French. It's kind of more human nature of saying, well, at least I'm alive. Exactly. The French specificity is that, after all, France has a quite strong welfare regime. And so even though there are extreme situations, I don't want to play down the extreme situation on some banlieues or some specifically poor neighborhoods and segments of the population. But as a general rule, there's a, there's a pretty, pretty robust safety net for people. Exactly. And most people didn't lose their job. They got quite robust unemployment subsidy and they kept their job and most of the salary. On a personal level for you, are, are you are you more on the negative or the positive uh, spectrum of things? Uh, I wish I had a garden. One thing that we found is that most stressed people are actually people doing uh, teletravail, that is uh, working remotely from home and, and not going out uh, frequently. And actually we found also that people that have gardens, balconies and access to open spaces tend to have better response to to the crisis and lower levels of stress. Parisians, for once, are in in a worse position than provincials. Farmers and people living in in smaller villages and more remote parts of France tend to self-assess their condition as being relatively privileged. So, and, and you evoke this because, of course, you know, the general feeling of well-being, people are feeling supported more or less by the government programs and stuff. But when you drill down, of course, then you end up finding that there are certain populations of people who aren't weathering this so well. Yeah. So far, we focus on the 75% to navigate relatively well the storm. But then there is the other 25%, which is suffering. Uh, This proportion is higher among foreign-born respondents uh, and the most financially vulnerable. Also women are faring worse than men. Women report that they have to work more than they used to. So there is some sort maybe of general, traditional, uh, divisional labor at home that weights on the shoulders of women. And also taking care of kids. That's astonishing. Uh, when it comes to supervising the children's schoolwork daily, uh, 70% of women say that they do it, as opposed to uh, 32% of men. 
even though people are stuck at home and everybody's all together, it's still falling on the women to do it. Exactly. And you said it's astonishing. That's surprising. You think that in, in France, perhaps that might be different? Well, France has a high labor force participation of women, a strong culture of feminism and gender sensitive attitudes. So if this is so in France, guess how it could be in more macho-oriented cultures. So you're saying it's, it's going back to, you know, the general feeling of people are feeling philosophical and, and okay about this all. But then you also realize as we move towards getting out of the lockdown, there is a lot of uncertainty and, and people don't like uncertainty. Uncertainty is the catch-all we, that we will uh, put up front in our second report. And now to change the subject slightly with a bit of history. So May 1st is tomorrow, Friday, Labor Day here in France, as it is in many countries. Um, traditionally here, it's a day of really big union marches. Yeah, this year, of course, is a bit different. We're confined. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting to know that the origins of the day actually were in the fight for the eight-hour workday, which, if you think about it, is also interesting given how work is being so disrupted today by this pandemic. Um, Labor Days did exist already in the 19th century, but they solidified around May 1st at the end of the century. In the United States in 1886, unions in Chicago organized a general strike for an eight-hour workday. The strike lasted three days, and by the end, a few protesters were left at Haymarket Square, where a bomb exploded in front of the police, killing an officer, and five anarchist union members were then sentenced to hanging afterwards. That became known as the Haymarket Affair, and three years later, in 1889, the Second Socialist International met in Paris to mark the centenary of the 1789 French Revolution, and there it was decided that they should mark this day, May 1st, with the Haymarket Affair as an international Labor Day, as a strike to protest for shorter working hours. Because at the time, French people were working up to 12, even 14 hours every day. Yeah, and six days a week also, too. I think they only had Sundays off. Um, by the next year, 1890, May Day was being marked in all of the contributing countries. In 1919, France finally did pass the eight-hour workday. May 1st became a bank holiday. One of the traditions you might see here in France is that of Muguet, or Lily of the Valley. Yeah, it's sold on many a street corner, and yeah, it smells really nice. Yeah, yeah, and flowers have been associated with May 1st really since the beginning, since the 19th century. At the beginning, it was an eglantine rose, this pink flower. Lily of the Valley replaced it. It's a spring flower. Some say that King Charles IX would offer Lily of the Valley to the ladies of the court in the 1560s. In any case, the unionists and the strikers started wearing them tied with a red ribbon. And Lily of the Valley became formalized in 1941 by Maréchal Pétain, who was the leader of France under the Vichy regime. He made May 1st the, the day of work and what he called social concordance, kind of trying to tie together this idea of work and family, patriotism. He got rid of the pink eglantine because of the socialist, communist undertones hmm. and went back to the white Lily of the Valley. <laughs> and today the holiday has gone back to its union roots, though. Unions organize marches every May 1st especially uh, here in the capital. On the far right, there's been an attempt to reappropriate the day, though, and the National Rally, that's the party led by Marine Le Pen, has celebrated Joan of Arc on May the 1st since 1988 now. 
But we're going to have none of that this year, of course. Unions have called on people to demonstrate online, also to put out signs on their windows and balconies to give voice to the forgotten and invisible workers who are working often at their own peril during the pandemic. So what happens to the Muge this year then? Yeah, well, so the growers, they're mostly around Nantes. Um, they've actually left most of the flowers in the fields. They've only picked the orders, which is about 30% of normal. Um, like a lot of agriculture in France, this uh, virus and pandemic has really disrupted business. Um, apparently, there'll be a lot of potted plants sold to people with gardens, and associations are looking to organize distributions to nursing homes. But you'll unlikely see anyone selling them on the street corners of Paris this year. Well, this is the last show for a while. Um, not that we've been beaten by the virus. Sarah, you're off on maternity leave, abandoning me. Yeah. Yeah, all for a good cause anyway. Well, we think so, yeah. Um, so the future of Spotlight on France is, like everything else at the moment, uncertain. Uh, we really can't tell you when we'll be back. But if you enjoy the show, if you have ideas of what you might like to hear about and you want it to return, please let us know. Write to us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And in the meantime, you could check out our many archives on rfienglish.com. There are now 38 episodes to choose from. I just can't believe we've done that many. I know. That sounds huge. But anyway, they're all out there just waiting to be listened to if you're interested in hearing about France. So for the moment, au revoir. Goodbye and take care. Goodbye.